0: So, hello folks, this is our Sunday Sangha for the UK. This is Sunday morning in the UK and uh, uh, Europe. Uh, here it's about four in the afternoon in Thailand. Um, and that uh, I've actually been recommending the book, Laurent, uh, to you and to several others. And in fact, I was hoping that Scott would join us today so that we could talk about the book and Scott's not here, but you bring it up anyway. That's serendipity. <laughs> uh, eh. All right. So uh what we're talking about is uh Ambedkar, who was a uh well he was quite well known in India. He was a, a politician, he was a university professor, and he knew a lot of history that in fact it's amazing how much history he knows right down to the brother-in-law's name of whoever it was that met the buddha that day you know it's that kind of detailed history that he has but we also have to understand several things about that book one was that it was done on his deathbed that it was this book that we're talking about uh, was the last thing uh, on his list and he was frantic to get it finished and it's a big thick book um it's actually w- worth reading but we also have to know that there is a lot of magical thinking in it because it's actually intended for the indians of today just like um let us say it was the uh ding and the Kaya who was written specifically for the Brahmins of the day to entice them into Buddhism. And so there's there's that enticing quality. It's almost like a, um, a movie that's um, what they call a, based on a true story. And that entices the audience to believe that what the movie said was actually what happened. Now, when I first read this book, well, 30 years ago or more, um, I was kind of skeptical at some of the detail, but now that I've reread much of it, I recognize that that he's making up stuff on the fly. That that a lot of what he's saying actually doesn't correspond to what actually is known. And one of the first examples is is that his mother, uh, uh, I forgot, pro- Mahamar Mah- Mah- something Maya uh she had a dream the night that he was conceived about going up to a 2 to heaven or something and meeting him and he's saying oh please dear lady I want this to be my last life will you consent to be my mother and that was a dream that she had which really upset dad and got a lot of stuff going but in all the other traditional literature she was gotten by a white elephant you know the story about the white elephant? Sure, you have. That's one of the the, the things that's made it into. But Ambedkar he didn't make an He didn't say anything about that story. Now, um, one of the things that we also can see is is that um, while being quite a scholar and understanding a lot of the history of what happened back in the time of the Buddha, he also has a a, a huge smattering of buddhism by indian standards built in or there's a lot of mahayana built into it also and that was the education that he had and so you're going to have a lot of the kind of magical thinking and that these 10 paramis or these 10 perfections is part of the mahayana tradition not part of the uh, the suttas per se that this is something that came later. And the 10 Parmes, um, I'm sure would be gratitude and sati and all the stuff that we're already doing. Upeka, you know, those are the, the items that you would put on the list of, of uh, the, the 10 things that need to be done. Okay, and let's talk about it a little bit later after I put it into a different kind of context. But, um, in fact, if you want, you can read that list of parmes to me. I I claim ignorance, but I, you know, if I were going to make up the list, I know what I'd put on it. Do you have that list in front of you, Laurent? Yes, yes, I do. All right.
1: You want. Let it roll. Okay, I hope you understand me well. All right, it's gonna take a while, but uh, well, the first one is a uh, he acquires mudita, so joy.
0: M- mudita.
1: Yeah. Is that it? Mudita. Mudita. Yeah. Mudita. Yes,
0: this one. Mudita. OK, yes, that would be on uh, if I sat down and thought about it. I talk about that often. The friendliness that you want to give others rather than a hard time, which is what we're taught to do in our culture. So Medita. Yeah, sure. Let's put that at the top of the list. Something worthy of doing. What's the second one?
1: So the second one is uh, Vimala. Pardon? It's called Vimala purity. So it means like uh, then it keeps on saying like once you uh, cleaned up everything from last and you know desire, then you can give uh, uh, other people some you know joy and uh, you don't uh, impact negatively the uh, the one you meet. So it looks like a result from Mudita, yeah
0: okay, all right. I don't know that particular word. Let's go on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The third one is a. Uh, Prabhakari. Prabhakari. Brightness. You're, you've got a microphone in your mic. I mean a uh, motorbike in your mic.
1: Probably uh, the third one is a. Uh, uh, Prabhakari, so. Kama. Um, pr- Prabhakari. Recovery.
0: Okay, I what does that mean? But
1: it means brightness.
0: Brightness, OK. Yeah, brightness. Well, there's the gladdening of the mind. There's the joy, OK? So you can see that this list has got the kind of stuff that we're working on anyway. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it looks very similar to, to what we practice, but um, I never heard you talk about it in this way. So uh-huh. I mean, using the term
0: uh Well, actually, the, what the Theravadas would do, would they would take four of these and four of those and add them together. Now we got eight and four of them things over there and we got 12 and then we add those 10 things and we've got, you know, 22. And then, you know, they wind up with 37, but you ex- know exactly where that stuff breaks down to. And it's just a memory aid. Yeah. Where in the Mahayana, they have it a little bit more uh, jumbled up. Okay. So, um, I have kind of a surprise for you. It's actually out of the introduction to this book that we're talking about from Ambekkar. And... Um, if you don't mind, I'll bring it up. Okay. And if you don't mind, I'll read it to you. But be listen carefully and closely because I want to make it as an open discussion. Okay. So here we start off. Anyone who is not a Buddhist finds it extremely difficult to present the life and teaching of the Buddha in a manner which would make it a consistent whole. Depending upon the Nikayas, not only presentation of a consistent story of the life of the Buddha becomes a difficult thing, uh, and the and the presentation of some of its teachings uh, becomes much more so. Indeed, it would be uh, it would not be an exaggeration to say that all of the founders of religions in the world, the presentation of the life and the teachings of the founder of the the Buddhism presents a problem, which is quite puzzling, if not baffling. It is not necessary that these problems should be solved and the path for the understanding of Buddhism be made clear. It is not time that those who are Buddhists should take up this, It is not time that those who are Buddhist should take up these problems at least in the general discussion and throw what light they can on these problems. I think that there's an error in there. I think he's saying that it is time that those who are Buddhist should take up these problems at least in the general discussion and throw what light there is on these problems with a view. To raise a discussion on these problems, I propose to set them out here. The first problem relates to the ma- the main event in the life of the Buddha, namely his Parij- Parijrava, which, why the Buddha would take Parijrava. The traditional answer is he took Parijrava because he saw a dead person, a sick person, an old person. And in fact, in the story that I know of, this in the he also saw a monk. This answer is absurd on the face of it, so says M. Bakar. The Buddha took uh, Parijava at the age of 29. He took uh, Parijava as the result of three sights. How is that he did not see these three sights before earlier? These are the common events occurring in the hundreds, and the Buddha could not have failed to come across these things earlier. It is impossible to accept the traditional explanation that this was the first time he saw them. The explanation is not plausible and does not appeal to reason. But if this is not the answer to the question, what is the real question, or the real answer to the question, why did the Buddha take Parijava? So. How do I get you back up? All right, now we're okay. First off, what they mean by Parajava is, is that he is he's a wanderer. He beco- he becomes a, a monk, a mendicant, a rishi, a forest dweller, a guy who hangs outside of society. Okay. So that's that's the question. Why why did he do that? Anybody got any answers? Anybody even understand the question? <laughs> Beta, give me a shot. What do
2: you think? Oh, sorry, did, did uh,
1: you were talking to me?
0: Okay. Yes, Martin, you go for it.
1: I'm not sure, but um, I read also that uh, he got uh, a kind of. uh, um, uh, You know when he is with his father, the king, and uh, it's the day of the the uh, kind of a big fest, and uh, it's the first day of the harvest, I think, and he see uh, the men working in the in the field. And he saw the bird eating uh, the worm, and uh, and it's too much for him. And so he sat down under a, 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 a rose tree, I think. And uh, maybe that's the the first time he he thought about this. Sorry, I'm not sure. I'm clear.
0: Okay. Does anybody else have an answer? Lion, do you have anything?
1: Well, he was probably, I think, fed up with, uh, <laughs> with uh, his situation, and maybe he couldn't uh, get any satisfaction, so he decided to look for it outside of the his usual world. I think. Um, yeah. Okay.
0: Kat, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think this is after he saw he went out of his um, palace or whatever, and he saw uh, someone really old, someone uh, dying or something, and
0: someone really sick. So this is like yeah, I just read that. Uh huh. Right. So this Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's absurd on his face. Even the answer that Veda gave is still absurd. That his dad kept him in seclusion so he wouldn't go out to see an old man. A sick person, why would the dad do that? What was the motivation behind that? If it were true, it still goes back to the point. All right, so anybody else got any any question before I give it away?
2: (laughs) Patrick, do you have a clue?
0: All right, so... Let us use the strange word that it was his destiny. It was set up at the time that he was born. And in fact, it had to do basically with the dreams that mommy was having when she was pregnant. That and the big ego of a daddy who was really powerful and strong and had a lot of money and lots of houses and stuff like that. Uh, As well as being the, the head of the Sakian clan at the time. So um, he butters up all the Brahmins in the neighborhood and and brings them into a a feast and then uh, presents them with the question, what's this kid going to do? And basically it was all of them were saying that, um, that he's going to be a wheel turning monarch. He's going to take over that crowd eventually. You know, he's going to go into battle and win some battle or something like that. And the only option that he would have would be that he would become a Buddha or something like that, according to whatever traditional systems of uh, that that they had. So that was the question. And the answer to that, that they, that they understood was is that so long as he lives in the palace with his father and stays among them then he will become that world turning wheel turning monarch and if he leaves home and becomes a mendicant then he will return also a wheel turning monarch in the sense of the best dude who got it he, he, he his trip into the forest was worthwhile for many people okay so that's the answer to the question that when in fact what happened did happen. He had no choice. His fate, his destiny, was already set up for that. And then, in fact, many of the ways that he handled the uh, um, the community, the sangha uh, of the of the Sakyans, almost he set that up intentionally. He had no other choice. And yet, we can see that in retrospect. And we all do that. Then in fact, we make decisions and choices that we set up to make. That we have competitions with people and we set up the criteria about how we're going to set it up so that whether we win or lose. But whether we win or lose is ordained by the rules that we play by in the game that we made up. That's the interesting part, okay? So in that regard, it was the Buddha's destiny to go out and become a buddha he was set up from childhood that way just like each one of you were kind of set up with the kind of destiny that you wound up having the question is did you rebel against that destiny or did you give in to it okay does anybody have any comment on that i mean that now that you hear the answer, you can say, Dada, what else could it be that it was not? That in fact, the last thing to say is is that there is actually a story in the suttas, in the Nikaya, a whole sutta, where the Buddha is telling Ananda about this prince who did go out and see an old man, a sick man, a dead man, and a monk. There's a sutta about it. And in the sutta, the Buddha is telling Ananda that in fact, this is me and you way back when. To establish what, so the Buddha, in fact, uh, would allow people to believe what they wanted to believe in order to make a big point of it. And so there's a position where the Buddha is in this sutta. But by the way, the other part of that is, is that this is in the Nikaya that has the same job to do of convincing the uh, Brahmins. And so you got to kind of sweeten the pot. You got to do some pacing before we do the leading. And so that's the reason that the sutras are written the way that they are, is to entice people out of their ignorance into reality.
2: So does anybody have any comments? Shall we go on? (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, here's the second problem. The second problem is created by the four Aryan truths, the four noble truths. Do they form part of his original teaching of the Buddha? This formula cuts at the root of Buddhism. If life is sorrow, death is sorrow, and rebirth is sorrow, then there is an end to everything. Neither religion nor philosophy can help a man to achieve happiness in the world. If there is no escape from sorrow, then what can religion do? What can Buddha do to relieve man from sorrow, which is ever there In birth itself, the four Aryan truths are a great stumbling block in the way of non-Buddhist accepting the gospel of Buddhism. For the four Aryan truths deny hope to man, the four Aryan truths make a gospel of the Buddha, a gospel of pessimism. Do they they form part of the original gospel or do they um, a later assertion, or is this an, a later assertion made by monks? Okay, so is this the original teaching of the Buddha, or what? Pop quiz time. Who's
2: got the answer to this one? Cap, you have a stab at it? Uh, <coughs> I think
1: Buddha in the fourth noble truth gave a path to end it all. So I don't
0: think that. uh... Absolutely, absolutely. This is just dead meat on his face, isn't it? (laughs) The path to the end of suffering. And where where the original question falters is when it makes a statement, life is sorrow. How many of you have ever heard that? Life is itself is suffering. I guess every, raise your hand if you've heard that life itself is something. (laughs) Beta says he's even got evidence that that is true. But sure, you've got evidence that it's true, but we've got evidence that it's not true. Okay. The penalty flag goes out on the field and half the people don't like it. And half the people cheer. Their choice. That's the whole point of it. is suffering, dukkha is optional. It is not life itself. Now, just because you don't like your life, that's up to you. <laughs> but it's not a guarantee. That's the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha, but it's not a guarantee. actually though it's quite confusing for many people when they hear about Buddhism and they don't see that it is in fact it's the path out but we have to point out the hell to get their attention so that they'll know how to avoid it if you can't see it coming then you can't avoid it This is the whole point about the teaching of that there is Dukkha. Because if we denied that Dukkha existed, then where do we go from there? There's no place to go. In fact, we're just stuck with whatever we've got by labeling it not Dukkha, where in fact, by having a clear definite definition of what is Dukkha. Ah, exactly, exactly. It's resistance. That when something happens and we don't like it, we resist it, and that's the dukkha. If something happens and we don't care, then there's nobody there to care. And that's the part that's built into um, the quality of the second noble truth, that when we understand that there is a creation of dukkha, guess who does that the big old me inside the one who is ignorant about what we should want and so we want things that we can't have and then we cry like a baby and then we say life sucks (laughs) where in fact it's not life that sucks it's me who is alive doing the sucking if we stop sucking life doesn't suck So, no more comments, huh? The Four Noble Truths actually does have an answer and is only a very ignorant kind of interpretation that would ever get anybody into thinking that Buddhism is in fact flawed because of the actual first teaching. So maybe the next thing that we can say is, is that in fact there is actually a sutta by the name of the um, Dhamma Chakra Bhavanta Sutta that has historically been known to be the turning of the wheel and that it was the first sermon that he gave and that's where he introduced the Four Noble Truths. So you can basically say that the Four Noble Truths, especially the Second Noble Truth, digs down into the cause of suffering, which is Patekta to recognize that in fact we are doing it ourselves. That it's not part of existence itself. It's a kind of a, um, a, a wind-up toy that gets hung up halfway through its song. And you can't say that the wind-up toy is bad toy. You just need, you can just say that if we tinker it here and there, we can get the thing to play its song. And so that's a better way of looking at it, that it's not inherently bad. But that's, in fact, the message of Christianity, that you're broken, that you can't fix yourself. Who are you to be good? Only God is good. All like sheep, we've gone astray, each one into his own way, you know. And if you don't have a plastic Jesus on the dashboard of your truck, you're going to run that truck into a tree. That's the message, which is not the same message as the Four Noble Truths. So let's do the next one. The third problem relates to the doctrine of soul, of karma and rebirth. If the Buddha denied the existence of the soul, but then he also said to have affirmed the doctrine of karma and rebirth. Now that's the question, did he affirm it or did he use it as a tool? At once a question arises, if there is no soul how can there be karma If there is no soul, how can there be rebirth? These are baffling questions. <laughs> in what sense did the Buddha use the word kama and rebirth? Did he use them in a different sense than the in, uh, in sense in which they were used by the Brahmins of his day? If so... In what sense? Did he use these things in the sense at which the the Brahmins use them? I don't think so. If so, is there not a terrible contradiction between the denial of the soul and the affirmation of karma and rebirth? This contradiction needs to be resolved. Anybody got any? Comments? Does that need to be resolved? Does the Buddha teach on one hand that there's a soul, and on another hand there is karma? And how can that be a contradiction?
2: Go ahead. Well, he teaches. He teaches that there is no permanent soul, but, Ah, uh, uh, mean... uh,
0: exactly so. That in fact, the question really here has to do with how long does karma last? Whatever that is. Yeah. OK, that in fact, uh, the actual original teaching was a good action will give a good result and a bad action will give a bad result. Now that was the original teaching, but every kid knows that that's not true. Half the time they can get away with it. And so the righteous among us, the ones who are uh, willing to make up stories and tell any kind of lie to get their way, will say good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results no matter what. No matter how long it takes, we're coming after you. (laughs) Okay, so that's the added addition. Because in fact, new circumstances and new actions and new commas almost always interfere with whatever direction the original action was going to take. A strong wind will move an arrow out of its place so that the king survives instead of dies or vice versa. so things are really really complicated like that and that's why the buddha gave the third law of kama and the third law of kama is is that there is both bright and dark action that gives both bright and dark results what that means is basically that there is no pure good action that's going to stay good no matter what because there's too much wind in the air and there's too much happening and that every comma every action winds up being diverted, mixed, turned around, or whatever like that, and it often requires at the other end some help. An example is like that is is that somebody thinks that they know who you are, and so they hurl an insult at you, but if you changed in the past 10 seconds and you'll let that insult just slip right by, but if you say, Oh no, that's me. He's insulting and you stand up and become the target. Then who got shot with an arrow? Is he the cause of his own arrow that he, I mean, is it his fault that he got shot with the arrow because he made himself the target? So. If that's the case, then the making oneself a target is a new action that actually has a quality of affecting the action of the arrow that got shot. And so the newest action is the one that's, you know, on the platter. This is why the Buddha in in at least several suttas, uh, number 12 in the Majjhima Nikaya, in the lion's War. He says, in fact, one of the.